The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So we've been working through the book of Exodus, and later in the month we plan, Lord willing, to look at passages directly about the birth of Christ. But We continue today, and we're in Exodus 20 today. Last week we primarily were in Exodus 19, and in that passage the people of Israel are approaching Mount Sinai, where God will give the law. So they're approaching the law, and we spent last Sunday talking about the way we might respond to the law. Unfortunately, we can sometimes forget that God's commands reveal God's character. As parents, or perhaps as employers, or as teachers, we might give instructions. Some of them might be unwise. Some of them might be impetuous. Sometimes as a parent, you might give an instruction out of haste or even anger. But God never gives any instructions that come from anything other than a perfectly good heart. So all of God's commands reveal His goodness in His character. And yet, God's character in its beauty and holiness and love can be responded to in two very different ways. One way that we looked at last Sunday is we might actually reject God's commands and refuse God's character. We might distrust it. We could do that by saying, well, I don't, I don't need any of that. I can live on my own. Or we could actually argue that, well, I'm, I'm fine. I'm perfectly good. I keep everything that I'm supposed to keep. But that would be a, a real danger. We would reject the goodness of God. The right way to respond to the commands of God, I summarized in the quote from the poet William Cowper. He said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. And when you see the commands of God as good, even though they reveal bad things about us, you rejoice because you see that God sent his son Jesus who was perfect in keeping the law and yet died the condemnation that lawbreakers deserve in our place. And then the law is no longer something that is weighted against us. The law is now something fulfilled by our Lord and the law becomes guidance for us to live the freedom that God intends for us. So the law is good because it reveals God's character. But that was all last Sunday's sermon. (laughs) And if you haven't heard it, uh, you could listen to it. God's good gift of the law. And if you receive the notes this week, you actually have last week's notes too. But today we look at the Ten Commandments. We begin them. There was a time in the Western world where nearly anybody you met on the street could recite the Ten Commandments, probably even in the right order. We're not in that time anymore. And knowing them actually is very important. So today we're going to primarily actually look at the first commandment. Here's the three things we're going to try to do this morning. First, we're going to answer what is required in the first commandment? What is God actually giving us in the first commandment? Second, we'll look at how might we break the first commandment without even maybe realizing we've broken the first commandment. But then third, what can empower us to find joy in the first commandment? All right, so first, what is it? Second, how might we break it? Third, how can we find joy in it? Those are the three, and if you have the bulletin, you know those are the big notes. But before we answer those three, will you go with me in on a little journey that I hope won't be overly academic? But I've found as a pastor over the years, many people have asked me, Josh, what do I do now as a 21st century Christian with this Old Testament law 
given to Israel through Moses. How is that relevant to me? What relationship should I have with it? So I'm not trying to get on a tangent for no purpose. I'm trying to hopefully help you understand what to do with two-thirds of the Bible. Okay? So let me take a moment to, to show you four ways over history the church has answered that question. So if you have the fuller notes from online, you have these in front of you. Otherwise, we're going to get back to the big three questions, but first we're dealing with four common ways Christians or, or people who've read the Bible have approached the Old Testament law. Here's the first one. Some people have argued we need to do everything written in the law given through Moses to the letter today. Everything exactly as it's written to the letter. Uh, some people who hold that would be known as theonomist or reconstructionist. Rachel Held Evans made that somewhat popular when she released a best-selling book several years ago called A Year of Biblical Womanhood, where she tried to literally, to the letter, follow everything that the Old Covenant law says we ought to do. And actually, many people who are not believers, who are outside of evangelicalism, think that's what we all do. <laughs> think, think that that's how we approach the Old Testament. And so it'd be helpful to point out that that is not the way we would approach the Old Testament. And here's a few reasons why. First, because we're followers of Jesus. That, that might be the first big foundational point. We understand God through his son Christ, not through a covenant given to a nation with Moses as its mediator. But also anyone who was to argue, we need to follow the old covenant laws to the letter today, actually cannot do it because it's impossible. For example, the old covenant requires that we would bring an unblemished animal sacrifice to a tabernacle existing in Jerusalem, which has been destroyed since AD 70. And so nobody can actually literally follow the letter of the old covenant law. All right, here's the second way Christians have approached it, sort of the other end of the spectrum. They've said, well, let's ignore everything in the old covenant law given through Moses. Sometimes people talk about it this way. Let's just unhitch from those parts of the Bible. Let's only look at anything that comes after, Je after Jesus came. But I hope you can think of a couple of reasons why we ought not do that. First, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for reproof, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. So we don't want to get rid of two-thirds of the Bible. Surely it undergirds and reemerges in what we have throughout the Bible. All right, here's a third way that people approach the Old Covenant, the law given through Moses. I know I'm giving you so many lists this morning. Uh, can I? All right, this third one has four flavors. Please forgive me, okay? <laughs> this third one has four flavors, all right? The third one is what I'll call the pick-and-choose approach. The pick-and-choose approach says, I don't know what to do with all these commands, so I'll pick some and I'll leave some others. Here are four flavors of that. The first flavor is, well, if it's explicitly repeated in the New Testament then we still ought to do it. But there's a lot of things not repeated I'm not sure you want to get rid of. For example, the old covenant says child sacrifice is wrong. That's never repeated in the new covenant anywhere. All right, here's the second one. Only if it's repealed. All right, so we'll keep everything. This is flavor number two. We'll keep everything unless it's repealed, but then you'd have to quit farming every seven years. All right, here's a third one. I'm sympathetic to it, but some people say, well, let's just keep the ten. We'll keep the Ten Commandments, we'll get rid of everything else. But the truth is, we don't actually keep the Ten. We're here on Sunday, not on Saturday. We've already broken the Sabbath. 
And if yesterday you um, turned on your oven and it has fire, or if you started your car and it uses an internal combustion engine, you broke the protocol for the Sabbath. You kindled fire. So no one actually keeps the Ten Commandments either. All right, this one, this is the fourth flavor of number three. I'm very sympathetic to it, though I'm going to say it's still not ideal, but I'm very sympathetic to it. And that is that you take the Old Covenant laws and you break them into really neat categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. And then you keep only the moral and you get rid of the other two. I love how neat that is. It's just the Bible never does that. So the Bible never presents it that way. In fact, the Bible actually presents those commands as so sticky that if you pull them, they all kind of stick together. So the Bible says adultery is bad, but in the Old Testament, adultery makes you ceremonially unclean, and adultery has a civil punishment of death. You can't really pull them apart from each other. They're all kind of stuck together. So here's how I'd want to encourage us to actually approach these Old Testament laws. They are a constitution, so to speak, given to a nation at a given time through Moses as their mediator. We should not view them that way. Here's how we should view them. View number four. We should view them only through Jesus. Jesus who came to fulfill them. By keeping them perfectly, by bearing the consequence for all of us who've broken them, and we all have, but by bringing them to completion and empowering us with a heart that can keep the principles of them, the heart of them, the truth of them, as he reveals throughout Scripture. So Paul says this actually in 1 Corinthians 9. I, I love this passage. He's talking about what we ought to do to see people saved. But then he almost sidebars and makes a really important point. He says, to those who were under the law, to the Jews, I acted as if I'm under the law, though I'm really not under the law. And to those who are outside of the law given through Moses, to Gentiles, I acted as someone outside of the law, but I'm actually not outside of the law. I'm under the law of Christ. This is how we understand it now as New Testament believers. Let me give two examples so that it makes sense. All right, so what do we do with the Sabbath now? I just told us that we've all broken it as it was given through Moses. So how should we understand it today? Well, though the Sabbath is not kept by anybody in the way it was written in the Old Covenant, the Sabbath does show us a principle that God showed us in the week of creation, a principle of resting. And the particulars that he did give through the law of Moses do teach us something about the way we ought to learn to rest and rejoice as a rhythm in our relationship with God. And so we can learn even from the particulars. I'll give you another example to show how this happens. So Paul in 1 Timothy 5 is making a case that we ought to honor elders who are worthy of honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. But to make his case... He appeals to Deuteronomy, where we were taught not to muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. Now, we don't have a responsibility today to deal with oxen as a constitutional responsibility, but we do have a principle there about God's loving heart to take care to fairly treat anybody who's exerting effort to accomplish something. And that is what we learn when we go through the Old Covenant. We learn the character of God. Do we obey the exact letter of every one of these laws given through Moses? No, but every one of them reveals the timeless character of God that's filled in through Christ as we continue to read the scriptures. All right, that was our journey. Now we're back to the original questions, and you can ask me more about that later if I poked more questions for you. 
We're looking today at Exodus 20, verse 3. Would you look at it with me? The first commandment. And we're going to try to answer three questions. What is required in it? How might we subtly break it? But third, what can empower us to love it and keep it? So number one, what is required in it? Look in God's word, Exodus 20, verse 3. God says out loud through the mountain, and this is now repeated by Christ, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. What is this requiring? What is God teaching the first commandment? I'm going to argue that he's teaching that we need to know there's no other gods but him. We need to trust that there's no other gods than him. And we need to love that there's no other God but him. First, we need to know there's no other God but him. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul makes this argument. He says, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. For although there be many so-called gods on heaven and earth, yet there is actually only one God, the Father, through whom are all things for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul is saying it this way. There is one God. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Whatever else you call God is not God. You must know there's only one God. In the Old Testament, this is repeated over and over. Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. Know in your heart that the Lord God is in heaven and above on earth, and there is no other. God says in Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The Bible opens with, in the beginning, God. So the truth that there is no God but God is not only a commandment, it's the first thought of Scripture. So first, the first commandment teaches us to know that there's only one God. But second, it teaches us to trust that there's only one God. Verse 3 says, you shall have. So you need to know there's no other gods, but you also need to have in your heart nothing else that you treat as if it was God. Joshua says this in Joshua 24, choose for this day whom you will serve, the Lord Or something else that you would call God. Elijah famously at Mount Carmel says that this will be shown so that the Lord only is God. Jesus applies this not to idols made with hands when he says you cannot serve two masters. You either love the one or hate the other. Cling to the one, reject the other. You cannot serve God in money, Jesus says. Kevin DeYoung writes wisely, the fault with us as people has always been the word and. The Lord is fine, but we want the Lord and Baal, the Lord and money, the Lord and social respectability. We're quite happy to have God just so long as he only fills up a portion. We want a trivial pursuit God, he says, where we can have manageable pieces of the pie. But he concludes, God has no interest in being one important person among many. God cannot be worshipped rightly if he is worshipped alongside any other. So the first commandment is to know that only God is God, but it's also to trust that only God is God. But third, it's to love that only God is God. Look in verse 3. I know I'm drawing a lot out of just verse 3. But it says, you shall have no other gods, notice the last two words, before me. The Hebrew could be translated before me or in my presence or in my face. And I think all the Old Testament scholars that I've read are correct, that it means in the face of or in the presence of. Here's the point. God is saying we have a unique relationship, me and my people. 
Why would you bring anybody else into the relationship at our level? John Calvin put it this way. He said that to break the first commandment is idolatry. That's like bringing an adulterer before your spouse. Bringing in that other person that you've been unfaithful with. Remember that we concluded last Sunday's sermon by showing from Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, that God had made Israel his, his treasured possession. For us to break the first commandment is to say, no, we want something else or someone else in that covenant relationship, but it's really only God. This is why when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. So loving God is the heart of the commandment. You're in Exodus 20. Look back up to verse 1 so that you remember that these are not ten commandments to be hung on a courtroom, but they are a demonstration of a relationship. Look in Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. God had given grace despite sin. God had given grace to create a relationship. God now wants grace to guide and govern the relationship. To break that grace is to bring in anything else as if it could have the status God alone has. So the first commandment teaches us to love God appropriately, exclusively, ultimately, and eternally. But that's all answering question number one. What does the first commandment teach us? It teaches us to know, trust, and love God. But now question number two, how might we subtly break the first commandment? I think one of the ways we might break the first commandment is becoming popular in our culture today, and that is to think we can live well without it. In 2017, a poll was taken of the citizens of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, and they were asked which of the Ten Commandments are still relevant today. They argued that six out of the Ten Commandments are still relevant, like don't steal and don't lie and don't murder and don't covet. They said the least relevant commandment was the first commandment. So they they said of all the commandments that are given in the Ten Commandments, the one we need the least is the first commandment. But have you ever thought that actually the first commandment is the only thing that enables the other nine to work. It's first in the sense that it's foundational. You see, if I lie because lying would somehow cause me to save or make more money, then yes, I've broken the ninth commandment, but only because I've already broken the first commandment. Money has become my God. If I slander or impugn somebody else at the company because we're both up for a promotion and there's only one position left, yes, I've broken the 10th commandment, I've coveted, I've broken the 8th commandment, I've stolen, but only because I've broken the 1st commandment, career advancement has become my God. If my parents are aging and I decide that taking care of them would really be a strain on my own personal freedoms then yes, I've broken the fifth commandment. I have not honored my father and mother, but only because I've already broken the first, I've made comfort my God, you see? The first commandment is by far the most important. We're wrong if we think we can break the first commandment and live well. But have you noticed that in America today, two things are paradoxically rising at the same time, secularism and moralism. They're growing at the same pace. See, Moral conviction is to say, I feel this is the right thing. But moral obligation is to say, you ought to do this as well. 
But if we get rid of the first commandment, you can still have moral conviction. I feel this is right, but you can no longer have moral obligation. You can't tell anybody else what's right. Our secular culture has been trying to do that to no success. Imagine people who reject the first commandment are trying to have a debate over whether or not we should care for the poor. Should we care for the poor? Should we take care of people who are poor? If you reject the first commandment, here are the arguments you have left to argue for why someone ought to do that. You can say, I feel you ought to do this, but if someone else says, well, I don't feel I ought to, then how can you oblige them, obligate them? I owe Tim Keller these observations. Here are common arguments today in our rising moralistic, secularistic culture to try to have moral obligation apart from the first commandment. The first way we hear it is people say, well, our moral feelings come from evolution, from Genetics And the reason we ought to care for the poor is because evolution teaches us that over the millions of years. But have you ever watched the natural world? <laughs> I'm not sure any animals are looking out for the weak animals. Or even if you were able to say, well, we can prove that our ancient ancestors did care for the poor. Why would that oblige me to do that now? All right, here's a second argument that's made. Uh, it's called the practicality argument. The argument is, well, okay, you're right. We don't have a transcendent authority. We don't have a God we believe in, but we think it's practical to care for the poor and that's why you ought to do it. Well, if you say it's practical to care for the poor, you're not even saying it's wrong. (laughs) You're just saying it's practical. And by practical, you're appealing to my selfish interest. And what if someone says, well, actually, you know, it's not very practical. You have no way to ground that. All right, here's a third one. And I have many secular friends that I still email with, and I love these guys. This is the one they commonly say. When we talk about the existence of God, and they reject the existence of God, they say, Josh, you're right, um, it's hard to come up with ethics apart from God, but the way we come up with ethics is through social consensus. That's how we decide what's right or wrong. And whatever the vast majority agree on, that's what's right. And I, I always say to my secular friends, really, you sure? Because a thousand years ago, the developed world all agreed that slavery was a great thing. Or how about Nazi Germany in the 1940s? You really want to go with social consensus to determine what's right or wrong. I don't know if you've spent any time on the internet, but social consensus on the internet does not normally lead to wisdom. It does not normally lead to wisdom. Uh, there was a polar research vessel that was made in, in England. It was a polar research vessel that cost them $287 million to make this thing. Well, they were trying to generate public interest in it to make it more popular and said they opened on the internet an open forum to name the polar vessel. To try to help generate some interest, they gave them a couple names. Ernest Shackleton was an explorer. He was an option. The, uh, the Endeavor was an option. The Falcon was an option. But there was also a write-in option. So this $287 million polar research vessel was named overwhelmingly based on the write-in option, Bodie McBoatface. That's what our cousins across the pond came up with when they were given the opportunity to name something. That's what they chose because the Internet... And social consensus is not a place for wisdom. As my good friend from Hickory, North Carolina likes to put it, none of us is as stupid as all of us. And that is a great way to think about it. Uh, There's another common way that people say, well, you don't need the first commandment in order to live well. Living well is just common sense. Well, if it's common sense to care for the poor, then why do so many people disagree with you? 
And the fifth, and this is, if you're watching the news, this is becoming the most common one. Well, we'll just force you to agree. We'll just force you to agree. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but the tribalism and the rancorous culture wars that we have are because we've broken the first commandment. If we don't know who God is and what's of ultimate importance, there is no way that we could ever properly live or properly treat anyone else well. Now, just to be clear, if you're thinking, well, Josh, are you saying that someone who's an atheist or secular can't live well? I'm not saying that. I know that you can reject the existence of God and still make wise social moral choices, but I'm just saying you can't have any moral obligation for anyone else. And actually what you're going to find out is that the ethics that you're going to end up using are ones that are borrowed from here. So Tom Holland, who uh, is a British historian, not Tom Holland who plays (laughs) Spider-Man, but Tom Holland is a British historian. And he grew up in a Christian home and he went to Sunday school and he had experienced a lot of you have had or have heard of. It's very common. He grows up in church, grows up in Sunday school goes off to an academic university and finds himself questioning everything he was taught growing up and decides to reject everything he was taught. And and he was embarrassed with the Sunday school lessons he heard as a kid. And so he decided to devote his big intellect on studying Greco-Roman culture because he thought that would be a great foil to Christianity. And so he thought, I'm going to become an expert in Greco-Roman history, and then I'll find real culture. And here's what he wrote. The longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of Leonidas, the leader of the Spartans, whose people practice a particularly murderous form of eugenics, training their young to kill Untermenchkin by night, were nothing that I recognized as my own. Nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. As such, the founding conviction of the Enlightenment, that it owed nothing to the faith that had come before it, increasingly came to seem unsustainable. He concluded, Familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion in the West has dulled our sense to just how completely novel a deity Jesus Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two-millennial old revolution Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in a post-Christian society still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my moral and ethics, I came to accept that I'm not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly Christian. So for all of Holland's research, he only found that All the good ethical norms that only come from the character of God as recorded in the Bible. Many people are doing that research today. Brian Tierney works at Cornell University. He has shown that human rights came not from the philosophies of the Enlightenment, but Christian canon work in the 12th century. Kyle Harper works at the University of Oklahoma, and he has shown that the idea of bodily rights or the idea that sex should be consensual only has Christian origins. 
Tom Holland has shown that when the last pagan emperor of Rome, Julian, decided to revive paganism because Christianity was becoming too popular, he tried to bring paganism back, but paganism only taught that you should crush the weak and afflicted. Christians took care of orphans, poor, and abandoned infants, and instead Christianity emerged and Rome's empire fell. Ironically, even the birth of modern science, as we understand it today, was founded on the Christian belief that reality is not an illusion, but that it actually exists and that it has a design and order. So how do we break the first commandment? We live as if we don't need it. We live as if we can have virtue without putting God first. Jonathan Edwards wrote on the nature of true virtue that sin destroys the social fabric unless God is our highest love. If we worship family first, we'll never pour out ourselves for other families. If we worship our tribe first, We'll be at war with anyone who disagrees. If we worship our personal happiness first, then we have no resources to divest ourselves to serve anyone else. It is only, as Jesus put, if we love the Lord our God first that we can love our neighbor second. So, are God's commands burdensome? That's another reason why we might reject the first commandment. We might say, well, Josh, I just think God gives too many commands. Well, there are ten commands here, that's true. And there are about 600 case laws that will follow in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's true. But did you know how many laws there are on the books in the United States? (laughs) Just take gun laws. There's over 20,000 regulations on gun ownership. In 2010, just that year, 40,000 new laws were added at various federal levels. The United States Code, which is just one of the federal laws accounting, and doesn't even include regulatory statutes, has more than 50 volumes. This one's my favorite. In 2008, a House committee asked the Congressional Research Service to calculate how many criminal offenses there were in the law. They responded, five years later, that they lacked the manpower and resources to answer such a question. (laughs) That's the kind of government job I want, you know? (laughs) I don't have an answer, but just keep paying me. I'll get back in the future. See, the the truth is, Satan has deceived us into thinking that God is heavy-handed. But remember what we just read. God is a father who has already redeemed them. These are not commands to enslave a free people. These are guidance to continue the freedom that he has purchased for them. The commands are not burdensome. The commands are a blessing. And whenever we question God's heart and try to come up with our own, we find that we can't improve on them and that we tend to borrow from them. CNN wrote an article about the atheist's new Ten Commandments. Lex Bayer is an executive at Airbnb, and John Figdor is a humanist chaplain at Stanford. And they polled 2,800 atheists, and they tried to come up with ten non-commandments. They were clear to call them non-commandments. Here are their ten. Number one, be open-minded. Number two, strive to understand what is likely to be true, not what you believe is true. Number three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the world. Number four, every person has the right to their own body and their own choices. Number five, God is not needed to live a a meaningful or full life. Number six, be mindful of consequences and your actions and take responsibility. Number seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you. 
Number eight, consider others, including future generations. Number nine, there's no one right way to live. Number ten, leave the world a better place you found it. What did you catch when I gave you those ten non-commandments? Number five was you don't need God to know how to live. And yet, number seven was a quotation of the golden rule given by Jesus in Matthew 7. Number three was the scientific method gives us all our answers, but no tipping of the hat was given to Francis Bacon, the Christian who said that the scientific method is the way we can understand the world that God designed. More to the point, they're called non-commandments, but they all have moral ought. These commandments ironically have number nine, there's no one right to live. No one right way to live. I don't know how you understand the other ten. Yes, it's true. Someone could argue, yeah, but Christians, they're always doing things they shouldn't do. That's true. And when Christians don't live the way we ought to live, press that point. But to hold us to account, you'll end up having to use the standards of Christianity. That doesn't prove the standards are wrong. It just proves that we need a savior that can fulfill what we've failed at. See, Exodus 20, verse 3, is giving us a blessing. And now in light of that, follow with me in Exodus 20, and let's continue down to verse 4. See, when God tells us to have no other gods before God, it's because he's protecting us from trying to fill a void outside of him that can't be filled anywhere else. That's why number four, or number two in verse 4 says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Here's the simplest way I can explain verse 4. The first commandment is teaching us, don't make a false god. Don't treat anything else with what only God deserves, trust and love. But the second commandment is telling us this. Don't reshape God falsely. All right, first commandment, don't worship a false god. Second commandment, don't reshape God falsely. Here's how this happened in Exodus. In chapter 34, God has finished giving the commandments. Moses comes down with the two tablets of stone. Remember in chapter 19, the Israelites have said, we will obey everything you command. We're 100% with you. Moses comes down the mountain. And at that moment that he comes down, they're completely unfaithful to him. They're breaking all the commandments. And they've taken the gold and silver that God gave them from Egypt. And they've fashioned it into a golden calf which they are now worshiping. But what they say before and after the calf is very important. When they give the gold to Aaron, they say, make gods for us. And after Aaron makes the golden calf, he says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Do you see what they've done? They've remade the living and true God in the way they want him to be. Now, I've heard politicians have debates about what God is like, because sometimes politicians like to say that they're Christians and use that for their own advantage. And one of the debates I heard a few years ago, the one guy was saying, well, I know God would want me to live this way. And the other guy said, well, that's not what the Bible says. And then the first guy said, yes, but my God affirms what I want to do. And I've said, he, he maybe spoke more, more revealingly than he intended. My God, yeah, the God you made up is the God that lets you live that way. Have you ever noticed that when we make God the way we want him to be, he looks a lot like us, you know? Because we end up making him according to our own sensibilities. A good example of this is Thomas Jefferson. 
Many of you probably know that Thomas Jefferson literally got out scissors and cut all the pieces of the Bible out that were supernatural because he did not believe in miracles. And so in Thomas Jefferson's copy of the Bible, Jesus stays in the tomb. He's never resurrected. Now, why would Thomas Jefferson do that? Because the cultural air he was breathing was the Enlightenment. See, if Thomas Jefferson grew up in South Africa or South America, I highly doubt the miracles would have been his objection. You see, when we refashion God, it only shows us what we want, not who God is. Let God be God in all that he is for all his glory. That's the only hole that fits in our void. See, God is all that we need. So now look in verse 5 and 6 of Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to things that you would make or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm enough for you and we have a relationship. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. He's not saying that he punishes grandchildren for their grandparents' sins. He's saying each generation that hates me incurs rejection of me. But notice God's inclination in verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands. Douglas Stewart is a Hebrew scholar, and he's done research, and he said there's no numerical disparity greater than this in the entire Bible. So four or five versus thousands. Doesn't that tell us something about God's heart? His desire is to give steadfast love to thousands who love him. See, idolatry is so dangerous because idolatry can take even good things and make them ultimate things. And these commandments are trying to protect us from trying to fill our heart with the wrong shape because we have a God-shaped hole. Nothing else can fill it. Cynthia Heimel wrote on how some people try to fill the God-sized hole in their heart through fame. And she wrote an article in 1990 called Tongue in Chic. It's a witty title. Now, remember, it's 1990. She said, I pity celebrities. I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Barbara Streisand. Remember, 1990, right? They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Hopefully we would write that better than that sentence. She said, you see, Sylvester, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and morning after morning, each one of them did everything they could to become famous until they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And yet they woke up still them. And the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Let's ask ourselves, am I making false gods? What am I actually trusting and longing and looking to to give me what only God can give me? Or am I actually remaking God after an image that I prefer? Let me give you some questions that will help us evaluate this. In your own life, when there's a head-to-head battle over a choice you need to make, what typically wins? And how is it determined? I can do this or I can do that. Which moves the needle? 
What affects your mood enough that it changes your whole day? If two hours in your schedule opened up with free time, what what are you most naturally drawn to use it with? What if it was taken from you would just destroy you? All sorts of good things that are gifts from God can become ultimate things if we're not careful. My wife and I, uh, when we... We've been married, I think, two or three years at this point. No, maybe more. Maybe about five. When we had saved up for a while, we were going to buy our first car together. The cars that we brought into the marriage barely ran. (laughs) So we were finally able to save up and buy our first car together. And I'll never forget this. The day we bought it, we were so excited about it. It's that new car stage where you're even, like, shining the tires. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? We're in that part of the car stage. We buy that car, and there were these kids that lived in the neighborhood that we were picking up for church. And so we bought the car that day. We drove to their house to pick up these kids for church. And the little girl was learning how to ride her bike. And I saw on her bike, you know, like the rubber handles. Her, hers was so worn down that the metal was exposed at the end. And it was like time slowed down. And I could see this girl wobbling on her bike. And that handlebar was exposed. And I was trying to keep my car out of the way. And sure enough, she went right into the car. And she scratched in the back corner bumper her handlebar on the day that we had bought the new car. And for a moment, I was like, those brats better learn to walk. Because I'm <laughs> never picking them up again. <laughs> but in that moment, I was given an illustration to what do I love? What, what if it got messed up? I don't even know what to do anymore. Right. So look again in Exodus 20. Let me show you that God is actually good. He's not trying to say something for our detriment, but for our good. Verse 3. Why would you have any God before God? Verse 4. Why would you make anything for yourself other than God? What could you make that's better? Verse 5. What would you bound down to? What would you serve? What would you want when God is your God? See, God is good. All that he asks is good. All that he says is good. He gives no commands that are random or arbitrary. They're actually for our benefit so that we can avail ourselves to all the blessings that he alone has. So this morning, I want to remind you that though it's scary, here are the two options we have. We can search for something other than God, or we can come with nothing and find that God is everything. We can search for something other than God, or we can come with nothing and find that God is everything. Let me press the come with nothing part. C.S. Lewis has this great section of the end of mere Christianity where he answers this question, is Christianity harder or easier than we think? He writes, the Christian way is different. It's harder and it's easier. Jesus says, give me all. I don't want a little bit of your time and a little bit of your money or a little bit of your work. I want you. I haven't come to chip away at your natural self. I've come to kill it. So no half measures are any good. I'm not trying to trim a branch here and a branch there. I I need the whole tree down. So that all the desires which you think were innocent, including the ones that you thought were wicked, the whole thing needs to be remade. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, Lewis concludes, is to give God your whole self. But it's far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. Because what we're trying to do instead is to keep a little bit of our control here, and yet at the same time, God will give a little bit here. 
holding on to money and pleasure and ambition and hoping in spite of this that I'll still have Christ. But that's exactly what Christ warned us we cannot do. As Jesus said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I'm a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I will not produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I'll still just produce grass, no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I have to be plowed up and re-sown. If it scares us to come with nothing to God, then let me remind you that the alternative of the first commandment is to give yourself to something else. And whatever you give your other self to, your career, your kids, your approval, your comfort, you're giving that thing all the weight that will inevitably sink you. You give all your weight to that, and then five years, 10 years, 15 years, it isn't going the way you think it is, and you have a midlife crisis. You give your soul to Jesus, and you fail, and guess what? He'll forgive you. There is nothing else that can come close to Jesus, no false God or no false version of him that could fulfill us because we were created for him and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And let me tell you what Jesus did for you and me, people who still struggle to break the first commandment. Jesus took the curse of all of us who've broken the law. I love how Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's written, curse be anyone who hangs on a tree, but in Christ Jesus, the blessing has come. Received through faith. See, on Mount Sinai, Moses comes down the mountain with the two fresh tablets and sees the people in sin and he breaks the tablets because they have broken faithfulness to God. But at Mount Calvary, Rather than two stone tablets being broken, Jesus' body is broken for us. There he chooses to be broken so that the covenant could never be broken, so that he secures it through his perfect life and resurrection. Christ then gives us a new heart to love the Lord our God, to love our neighbor, and to see that the first commandment is a blessing. So this morning, put nothing in the place of Jesus Make nothing to replace Jesus. Learn to love the Lord your God because he first loved you. Let's pray together this morning. God, I thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ chose to give his body to be broken for us because we have broken the covenant, the law, and the requirements for a relationship in God's presence through our own sin. And yet, rather than facing the condemnation of rejecting God, God has sent his son to bring us close to him and make us his treasured possession. Lord, thank you that Jesus is enough. We don't need to find from anything else what can only be found in him. So protect us from the deception of thinking that we can live apart from God and his relationship. Protect us from the deceptive of thinking we can bring something into the relationship that will be a junior partner or a piece of the pie. Help us to come with nothing and to find that Jesus is everything. Protect us, Lord, from looking at other somethings. And also protect us in our cultural moment from thinking that it's possible to 
just sort of move on apart from these foundational commandments and build what is only possible based on the first commandment. It is foundational that God alone is God. There is no other. Humble us, Lord. And perhaps anyone here today who's walked in, maybe not even knowing if they have a relationship with God, may the law show them that we have failed. We are sinners. We do need a Savior. But Jesus is that Savior, and he opens his arms to us. May they come and believe in him and experience that he is enough. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.